Does a person's character really matter? Doesn't it only matter if they can do the right things? That's one of the arguments that many people are faced with when they're voting for politicians or when they're picking a coach for their team. I mean, if he can win the election and install the right policies, who cares how he gets it done? Or if she can buy the right players and enforce the right strategies to win the games, well, who cares how she lives her life? Some might ask the question, if you're choosing the pilot of your plane, would you want someone who's skilled at piloting a plane but has bad character, or would you rather have someone who has good character but no skills? Well, of course, if you put it like that, you might pick the pilot who had skill and bad character. But what if your plane goes down on a desert island and you're stuck there and some people have to make sacrifices? Would you like to have a leader who's making decisions based on bad character? It starts to be a different question then, doesn't it? You know, in lots of life, people think that what they do matters more than who they really are. In fact, you know, we hear oftentimes whether celebrities or stars or popular people in the news do something wrong and they make a statement publicly, they say, that wasn't me or that's not me. Now, of course, you and I probably know what they mean. They mean probably that's not how I was brought up. That's not how I'm intending to live my life. But to claim that that's not them that did what they did, well, that's just not right. They are the person who did what they did. That was them. Character matters. And it matters in the most when we're doing ministry and in the church. That's one of the messages that Paul wanted to communicate to the young Pastor Timothy. Character matters. Who you are matters. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. We're in the New Testament, and it's really kind of close to the end of the Bible. It's in a stretch of books in the Bible called the Pastoral Epistles. An epistle is a letter these were letters written. There's 1st and 2nd Timothy, and there's Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. They're letters from Paul written to pastors, instructing them about the ministry of the gospel. Once you've found 2nd Timothy, we're in chapter 2, and we're at, towards the very end of chapter 2, we're going to look at verse 20 through chapter 3, verse 9. <clears throat> Follow along with me as I read. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, 
along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, you know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Let's pray and ask the Lord to give us wisdom and discernment about his word. Heavenly Father, we long for your word to correct and rebuke, encourage, and ultimately to transform us so that we're more and more like your son, Jesus. We know your word has power. Give us teachable hearts and minds, Lord, as we open your word this morning. We're praying this prayer, keeping in line with the purposes and the character of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Really, this whole passage can be summed up just like this. Gospel ministers pursue godly servanthood and avoid godless teachers. Gospel ministers pursue godly servanthood and avoid godless teachers. There's going to be two points this morning, and you can probably look at that statement and figure out what they're going to be. I'll tell them to you as we get there. Now, we're here in Paul's second letter to Timothy. We're about halfway through it, and he's just charged young Pastor Timothy to present himself to God as a worker approved with no need to be ashamed, someone who rightly handles God's word, his word of truth. And Paul mentions then two false teachers, Hymenaeus and Philetus, whose talk and teaching, the apostle says, are going to spread like rotting flesh or like gangrene throughout the church if people keep listening to them. Be warned, Paul says. They've swerved from the truth that they once held to. And as a result, ungodliness then is going to proliferate in the church. It's going to spread more and more ungodliness. But Paul says, don't be worried. Don't be worried. God's church is secure. Its foundation is firm. 
like an indestructible building that won't crumble no matter what kind of forces batter it. And in chapter 2, verses 14 through 19, he's urging Timothy to be an approved worker. Now he shifts to another image to urge Timothy to pursue godly servanthood in God's house, the church. Pursue godly servanthood. That's the first point this afternoon. Specifically, he's telling him to pursue servanthood in the Lord's service. And he sets up the idea of being a servant to the Lord by continuing to talk about this household, the household of faith. We noted last week that the metaphor of the church as a building or a house is one of Paul's favorite images for the church. He mentions it in a number of places in his letters to the different churches. He mentioned it to um, Timothy back in 1 Timothy as well. We'll come to that in just a little bit. And he mentioned in verses 14 through 19 this firm foundation that God's church stands on. But here it's not the foundation that Paul is talking about. He's shifting to in verses 20 through 21. Now he's focused on the contents of the house. Not the foundation, but the contents. What's inside? So look back at verse 20 and 21 there. At the very beginning of our passage, chapter 2. Now in a great house... There are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And so he begins describing this great house that has vessels made of different materials. Some are made of gold and silver. They're the ones that are honorable. And some are made of wood and clay. And those are for dishonorable use, of course. And of course, we know no one uses their best fine china in the restroom right? No one puts on a fancy dinner and they distribute the food out of trash bins. And that's what Paul's talking about here. He's drawing this big contrast. And then in verse 21, he explains that anyone who cleanses himself from what is dishonorable will be a vessel for honorable use. So he's saying that an unclean vessel can become a clean and honorable vessel, if they cleanse themselves. Now, of course, Paul, Paul is drawing this contrast here about different people in the church. He's not really talking about vessels, or the Greek word actually also can mean instruments. He's talking about people. And since he's speaking to a pastor about pastoral leadership, and he's pointedly bringing up the presence of false teachers in the church, this image applies primarily to leaders. Though, of course, anyone can learn from it, any of us here. The great house is the church. So back in 1 Timothy chapter 3.15, Paul says this. He says, the household of God, which is the church of the living God. That's a quote from 1 Timothy 3.15. So the household of God is the church of the living God. Further, he talks about the master in verse 21, so the master of the house mentioned is therefore God. God is the master of the great house. God is the master of the church. And the vessels are people, specifically leaders. We know that they're people because Paul says, if anyone cleanses himself. Okay, he shifts from vessels to people from 20 to 21. 
But you may have questions about this metaphor of the great house. I don't know if you did, if you read the, this passage in advance of this afternoon. You know, when we read scripture and we see metaphors or we see parables, one thing that we're often tempted to do is to read too much into the analogy. Sometimes it's tempting to get too creative with how the metaphor relates to real life. And we begin to try to connect every little bit and piece of the metaphor to something going on in real life. But there's usually a point where we can accidentally begin to push the analogy too far. And that's something that we need to be careful of here when we think about this metaphor and how it relates to the church and to leaders. The metaphor is mainly to set up a contrast between those two types of vessels or people and how only the clean are really useful to God. That's really what the metaphor is meant to do. And the way he describes the cleansed vessels is with three phrases, right? Someone who cleanses themselves and becomes a vessel for honorable use is one, set apart as holy, two, useful to the master, and three, ready for every good work. Holy, useful, and ready. These words describe a godly servant of God. But how does this transformation take place in a leader, or any Christian for that matter? How does one cleanse oneself? Well, look at verse 22 with me. Two simultaneous steps of obedience lead to cleansing. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Running away from some things and chasing after other things. And this is often true in the scriptures. Paul speaks like this of this, these contrasting steps of obedience that we're supposed to take. He did it when he spoke about, in one of his epistles, putting off the old self and putting on the new. This is very similar to that. Oftentimes people read this term, youthful passions, and the first thing that jumps to their mind is sexual sin. And of course it could include sexual sin, but sexual sin isn't explicitly mentioned in this passage anywhere. We can know more about what youthful passions are that Paul has in mind if we first consider the things that Paul's urging Timothy to pursue. So let's look at that first. Righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Now, of course, these are qualities that every gospel minister should be seeking to grow in continuously. And that word pursue in the Greek has its roots in the idea of hunting something or someone during wartime. Boy, that's a lot of energy and intensity in hunting down and pursuing these qualities. That's the kind of intensity with which a pastor is to pursue these qualities. They're described a godly person. The gospel minister must li live fleeing from sin and chasing after righteousness and holy living. They should be seeking to grow in faith. Of course, learning and knowing God's promises more and more deeply and trusting in them more and more every day. That's what faith is. A pastor is to pursue love. And that shows up in his love for all people, especially those he's shepherding in his church. And a leader who's growing in peace isn't so much someone who feels peaceful, 
as it is someone who lives peacefully with others. He's someone who helps resolve conflicts and leads people to forgive one another so that the unity of the church is strengthened and not torn down. All of these pursuits he does in community, you might see there in verse 22, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So once again, we see in God's word the corporate nature of the Christian life, even for leaders. Following Jesus is a team effort. It's a group activity. It's not supposed to be done solo. And that's why becoming a member of the church is so important. When we become a member of a church, we're essentially saying publicly and formally, I've trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of my sin and I pledge myself to grow in Christ with all of the other members of the church. I'll help you all and you all will help me. We'll do it together. So when we recite the church covenant at the end of the service before taking the Lord's Supper today, part of our pledge is going to be this. We will seek God's help to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly passions, remembering that we bear the name of Christ and now have a special obligation to lead a new and holy life. I mean, that's an extended way of saying Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. And then we look at verse 23. Verse 23 gives us a clue about what might be included in Paul's mind when he was speaking about those youthful passions that Timothy was to flee. There in 23 urges Timothy to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, he says. Back in verse 14, if you remember from last week, Paul told Timothy to remind the young pastors that he was going to be training not to quarrel about words. So he's always already brought up this idea of quarreling being a characteristic of young, immature leaders. And it was also a characteristic of false teachers as well. So at least one youthful passion that Timothy should run from would be quarrelsomeness or, or having a fighting attitude. That's, that's always being eager to win an argument. That's putting that as the highest value. And that's oftentimes a characteristic of young leadership. It's helpful to always remember that God gave us one mouth and two ears, indicating that we should listen at least twice as much as we should seek to be heard, especially when we're disagreeing with one another. And Timothy continues then in verse 24 by describing the ministry of a gospel minister, the ministry of a godly gospel minister. He considers himself the Lord's servant, of course, because he's doing whatever God wants. He's not pursuing what he wants to do himself. He's listening to his master. And so he won't be quarrelsome, but instead he'll be kind to everyone. That's what Paul says. He'll be able to teach, which is a major theme in Paul's instructions to Timothy throughout the entire letter. He'll be patiently enduring evil whenever he encounters it, whether it's inside the church or outside the church. And here's another clue to what might be a youthful passion. Impatience. 
impatience. Young leaders are oftentimes impatient and they want things to change immediately. I know I find myself wanting things to change quickly. I want things to change quickly in myself and I want things to change quickly around me. But churches and people oftentimes are like huge ships on the sea. They don't turn very quickly. You know, sometimes for very, very large ships, like a battleship, it might take almost 12 kilometers for a ship to turn completely around. It takes a long time. You have to be patient. And the youthful passion of impatience is oftentimes then coupled with a third passion, and that's of being too harsh. Being too harsh. It's the sharp, biting comment or the I just need to rant instinct kicking in, which all leaders, especially young leaders, and all Christians for that matter, should run away from. And so Paul mentions the opposite of harshness with his last characteristic of godly ministry. In verse 25, he says, the godly minister should be correcting his opponents with gentleness. You know, it takes a lot of godliness to respond to angry people, hurt people, with calmness. To not respond in kind. All of these characteristics, avoiding quarrels, showing kindness to everyone, teaching and patiently enduring evil, as well as gentle correction of those who oppose you. I mean, this is a beautiful picture of pastors who are Jesus's godly servants in the church. A church that is led by these kind of men will soon become like them. They will take on these very characteristics themselves. Church, these characteristics are the things that you should look for in men who would become elders in our church, in Covenant Hope Church. Nissen, Frank, and Mark. Men, we must grow in these areas that I just listed, especially us. We have to be fleeing youthful passions. And believe me, you don't have to be young to struggle with these kinds of sins that, that Paul has listed here. And brothers, we must pursue this kind of ministry together in the church. We need to hold one another accountable to this. All you men who aspire to be elders, you should pray for and work towards seeing God build these characteristics up in you as well. Which one do you need most? Look back at that list. Set out to gain that characteristic by God's grace, of course. You can't do it on your own. Through His work in you, pray and ask Him to begin changing you in that particular area. And since elders are to be an example for the congregation to imitate, all of you, men and women, young and old, you should flee these passions and pursue godliness in this form as well. Husbands and wives, you must not be quarrelsome with one another. Stop seeking to win the argument. Become a better listener. If you always give in to that impulse to have the last word in a fight, run away from that and seek to become the first person to apologize for being argumentative and harsh. 
Parents, grow toward patient and gentle correction of your children. If your discipline is always carried out with anger and fury, chances are you started too late in the disciplining process. You let it get out of hand. Kindness should be a characteristic that each of us demonstrate in abundance because, listen, Christ has shown each of us the greatest kindness anyone could ever show to another. Which aspect of godly servanthood do you need to pursue? And which youthful passion are you most prone to and need to flee from? Pick something on this list. Do it right now. Circle it in your Bible or write it on your bulletin. Pray that God would work in you and take action today. Act. God uses the ministry of godly servants to rescue men and women from the devil's trap. Look with me at that last sentence in verse 25 and then on into verse 26. Paul says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Listen, scripture is clear that people who have not turned to Christ are held captive by Satan. They've been captured by him to do his will, like it says at the end of verse 26. And lots of other scripture confirms this. You you probably can think of Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. They say this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Friends, we are the rest of mankind. We are part of them. And Although we may be Christians now, we were once caught in the snare of Satan. And that sounds extreme, doesn't it? There are plenty of people who are not Christians who are kind. (laughs) Many who don't follow Jesus, who show love, and they serve others throughout their lives in different ways, But this isn't evidence that they know God apart from Christ. Instead, it's evidence that God is kind even to his enemies. Kindness and love in non-Christians shows how God distributes common grace to all people to some degree. Common grace, not saving grace. But saving grace is what we long for people to discover. Saving grace is what we proclaim in Christ Jesus. These verses are describing the salvation of a person who was once opposed to God. No matter what ministry is happening in their life, it's God who grants repentance. Repentance is a gift from God. It's made possible when God removes a person's rebellious heart and gives them a new heart that's finally able to to repent. And then when they hear and understand the gospel, they're irresistibly drawn 
to it and to him. And their repentance opens the doorway to what it says in this verse, a knowledge of the truth, the truth of the gospel. They come to their senses. They're, they're just like the prodigal son was described by Jesus as coming to his senses there, wallowing in the pigsty and returning to his gracious father. In C.S. Lewis's books, The Screwtape Letters, he imagines a senior demon writing to a junior demon whose name is Wormwood and who is in charge of pestering and controlling a certain young man. And when the book opens, the young man is not following Christ. But the second chapter begins like this. Remember, it's a fictitious letter from a senior demon to a junior demon. My dear Wormwood, I note with grave displeasure that your patient, that's the young man, has become a Christian. Do not indulge the hope that you will escape the usual penalties. Apart from Christ, people are caught in Satan's snare. But don't think of scenes from a horror movie. <laughs> Look, the devil works in far more subtle ways, far more ordinary situations. Just like the screw tape demon tells the junior demon Wormwood later in the book, he says this, Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. That's how people go to hell. Faithful gospel ministry is about rescuing people from that often gradual and seemingly safe road that leads that way. You know, as I stand here and preach God's word to you, a spiritual battle is taking place. It always is. And it's not just happening when I preach. It's happening seven days a week. In your life and out there in the world in everyone else's life. Some of you are going to face temptations this week that Satan has planned for you. And you'll need God's clear and true word from today to think straight in those moments so that you flee to righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Others of you who have not turned to Christ, you're not a Christian, you may be wondering, could that really be me? <laughs> I mean, is he really serious? It could be you. And I am serious. Jesus came to pay the penalty for our rebellion against God. He rose from the grave to show it was accomplished. And now he holds out the prospect of escape from Satan's clutches for anyone who would turn to him, repenting of their sin and trusting in him. They go free. Oh, friend, if that's you, turn to Christ now. Trust in him. Paul wanted to remind Timothy that gospel ministry is a spiritual battle we fight and it wouldn't get any easier before Jesus returned. But in the meantime, Timothy needed to pursue godly servanthood and at the same time, he needed to avoid godless teachers. 
That's the theme of verses 1 through 9 in chapter 3. Avoid godless teachers. That's the second point this afternoon. And so Paul begins chapter 3 with a statement. He says, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now oftentimes people think of the last days as a time that hasn't come yet. But the reality is that the last days began with the arrival of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And we're still in them even now. And we know that, of course, even just from looking at this passage. Of course, there's evidence throughout the Bible that that's true. But just here in these verses, in 2 Timothy, we can see that the rest of verses 2 through 9 show that Paul is expecting Timothy will face these challenges himself. And perhaps he's already faced them in some way. And so, if Timothy was in the last days, so are we. Paul goes on to describe what people will be like. And by people, I think he means primarily false teachers. But like in the past verses, the verses right before these, these characteristics apply in some respect to all people in the last days. Of course, it's a matter of degrees. And then we have that list, that list in verses 2 through 5. I'm, I'm not going to go and read it all again. It's kind of exhausting to read through. You know, I, I think that Paul meant for that list to overwhelm us. I think that he meant for whoever was reading it out loud in whatever church it was to, to get out of breath and have to pause. One thing to point out to you in this list of sins, it's oftentimes by theologians called a vice list. The one thing to point out to you, perhaps, is how frequently some kind of love is mentioned here. I don't know. Did you notice that? But unlike the love that Timothy was commanded to pursue in verse 22 above, these sins describe misdirected love. So in verse 2, he says that in these last days, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Down in verse 3, he says they're not loving good. They hate the good because God is good. And in verse 4, they're described as lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see how much sin involves wrongly directed affections? God made us to love him above all in return for his extravagant love shown towards us. And if we were to love him above all, then love for others would come naturally. And we, we would carry it out effortlessly. We would love others in the right ways, not the wrong ways, if we were to love God first and above all. That's the way God planned it. That's the way it was designed. That's the way it was in the Garden of Eden for Adam and Eve. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it was misdirected love. It was love of self because they wanted to become like God in an illegitimate way. It was, you could say, love of money or love of possessions. They saw the fruit and they wanted it more than they wanted to obey. They wanted to possess it. There in the garden, they were not loving the good because God had defined what was good and bad when he gave the command. To love the good was to obey. To love the bad was to disobey. And they chose to love the bad. 
And they also demonstrated love of pleasure. Because when Eve ignored God's command and she reached for the fruit for she and her husband, thinking she thought to herself, quote, it's good for food and it's a delight to the eyes. Love for pleasure drove her and led her astray. And all of those misdirected affection shows a lack of love for God. If you're not a Christian, we want you to know that what happened when we trusted in Christ as Christians was that a true love for God was born in our hearts. None of us loved God before we knew Christ. Some of us may have been religious. Some of us may have looked at our so-called good deeds and thought we were loving God, but we weren't. And when we turned to Christ, God, of course, brought it about. But before that, no matter whether we were religious or not, we did not truly love God. But the good news of Jesus Christ awakened us to our sin and rebellion against him and his lavish love for us in Christ. And the love that he demonstrated when he came to die on a cross and then be raised from the grave to new life, oh, that love changed us. And now we love God. Paul describes what changed us in another place in the Bible, and he says it like this. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we can say this now. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's what the gospel has done for us, and that's what the gospel can do for anyone who turns to Christ in faith. God has redirected our love towards his son and himself, and it's like we've been born all over again. That's the message of the gospel. God has loved you in Christ so that you can find your greatest joy and fulfillment in the greatest purpose that God created you for. That's to know him and to love him. You can respond to him in faith by admitting your sin and receiving the gift of forgiveness and new life in Christ. Listen, I would ask you, if you're not a follower of Jesus, what are the greatest affections in your life and where are they directed right now? They were designed first and foremost to be directed to God, friend. Turn to him in faith. Because God has put love for himself inside of us, we hate it when we see anything from this long list that shows up in us. We hate it. And unlike the righteousness and faith and love and peace and knowledge of the truth that produced godly servanthood up in verses 22 through 26, the message and the ministry of the false teachers that are being described here produced fake godliness. False godliness. Look at verse 5. Paul says they have the appearance of godliness, but they're denying its power. 
their fake godliness was powerless to transform them or their followers into men and women more like God. And so, just like in verses 14 through 19, more and more ungodliness would grow. Paul tells Timothy, avoid such people. Up above, Timothy was to be kind to everyone, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. But for those who persist in rejecting the gospel and who begin to lead others astray, they should be avoided. Paul goes on to describe those false teachers' diabolical ministry as well. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says they would typically creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul shouldn't be understood here as saying that all women are weak and prone to being captured by these false teachers. But some are, and so are some men. But in this case, when the teachers were likely men, this was a pattern of behavior that Timothy was to look out for. Perhaps because the teachers were typically men, they were also perhaps driven by sensual desires, and so they went after weak women. They wanted to manipulate people, gullible people. And of course, that was a strategy of Satan from the very beginning in the garden, right? He sought out Eve to lead both Eve and Adam astray. Do you see how being burdened and entangled in sin makes you more vulnerable to false teaching? Whether you're a woman or a man, sin and carnal passions prevent you from thinking clearly and from understanding truth. And in that way, taking steps of obedience opens the door for you to understand God, God's word more and more. I've seen it over and over and over again in all my years of ministry. If someone's entangled in sin, their thinking becomes futile and it becomes clouded. Their reasons and their logic are riddled with excuses and things that don't make sense. Church, this is one thing we must be wary of and watch out for with one another. Is someone you know in the church listening to bad teaching? Or are they reading authors that might lead them astray? Are they, are they listening to teaching videos or podcasts that, that you have questions about? Listen, if, if, you're, if you've pledged to watch over their lives, I encourage you, don't ignore it. Now, don't march in there with guns a-blazing. Look back up and Verses 22 through 26, gently ask questions, kindly press in and listen well, and sound the alarm in love if necessary. Now Paul rounds out his warning to avoid godless teachers with another pair of men who stand out as examples of godless teachers. And so in verse 8 and 9, he's reminding Timothy about two men they're named Janus and Jambres, who opposed Moses. And if you bothered to look back in your Old Testament and find them, you couldn't because they're not listed there. 
Now, we uh, read earlier in our service, uh, GLN read to us from Exodus chapter 7, where Moses goes to Pharaoh and he performs miracles in front of Pharaoh to demonstrate that he's come from God and that his commands are from God. And Pharaoh sends out sorcerers and magicians. Now, in some translations of the Old Testament, from Hebrew into the languages of many of the Jews of Timothy's day, in those translations, they put notes, commentary, interpretations. And in some of them, those two men, Janus and Jambres, are mentioned. So it's not coming from Scripture, but it's coming from commentary on Scripture from back in Timothy's day and prior to that. So these two men, Jonas and Jambres, we can assume because they're mentioned in our scripture, in God's inerrant word, that they were the men who opposed Moses. They were some of the sorcerers and the magicians who were summoned by Pharaoh to perform the miracles to try to outdo Moses. Now these men opposed the truth. They opposed the truth because Moses spoke God's word to them. And Paul calls them here in 2 Timothy, corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Now think of that long list of wickedness that will pollute the earth in the last days and the devious ways of the false teachers who would lead weak women in the church astray. It would be tempting for Timothy to want to throw up his hands and surrender. I mean, if all this was going to happen, what chance could the church have? How could even sacrificial gospel ministry be worth it if all that was guaranteed to happen were these false teachers would just race through the church and lead all kinds of people down the wrong way? Well, but like in verses 14 through 19 of chapter 2, when Paul reassured Timothy about God's firm foundation standing despite the gangrene of the false teaching, the false teaching in the church, here he ends with a similar encouraging note. Verse 9, he says, But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of these two men. They may lead some astray, but they won't lead everyone astray. As Timothy and those he trained and taught with patience and love, the church would learn to recognize these gospel imposters. Their message would soon be revealed as bad news, not good news. Brothers and sisters, we must stay vigilant. Fleeing youthful passions and pursuing godliness, godly servanthood is our target, especially for leaders like myself and other elders. And the ministry of the church depends on it. If we're faithful, by God's grace, He'll use us to rescue people from the snare of the devil and to protect us until the last days are over when Jesus comes back. So I return to the first question. Does character matter? Or does just doing the right things matter? Brothers and sisters, character matters. Scripture tells us, and gospel ministry bears it out. Let's pray that God would equip us and enable us to follow him in obedience. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have warned us in your word. You've told us what to flee from and what to pursue. You've told us who to beware of, who to protect. You've told us what the qualities of godly leaders are. You've given us a target, a goal. Oh, Lord, would you equip us to walk in that way by your grace and by your mercy. In Christ's name, amen. This afternoon, this evening, we're going to 